Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. She's the owner of Awesome Outsourcing LLC and an entrepreneur. It's Michelle Thompson. How are you doing today, Michelle? Hey, I'm doing great, Alex. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Yeah, so I am from a little town called Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. Um, And uh, growing up, I pretty much was a sportsaholic. So I played soccer and basketball, a little bit of softball, and that pretty much took up a good part of my time. Did you have a favorite, something that keens your focus on? You know, uh, it's funny. I liked soccer better, but I was uh, better at basketball. So I ended up practicing basketball more than soccer. (laughs) It's very interesting. One sport you're good at with your feet, one you're using your hands and completely two different kind of activities, basically. Yeah. Yep. Did it, was it difficult living in a small town where you're not very like our surroundings, you're not around much that, but you're kind of can focus on the things that you enjoy and the people that you have around you. Yeah. I don't know that I even noticed honestly, because I, um, grew up in a, it wasn't a big church, but there were like 300 people. And so we probably had like 50 kids in the youth group. And so that was more than enough for us to have our own little clicks and, uh, stay busy with everybody else. So yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that I even noticed that it was a small town until I went to college in Philadelphia. And then I was like, Oh, this is a lot bigger. (laughs) Well, you kind of hear where people are like, everyone knows everything that's happening to each other. Did it get to that feeling in that town where everyone knew everyone, basically everyone's business, but not to a full extent? Uh, I would say kind of in the church, everybody knew everybody's business, but in the town, no, there were probably, you know, a hundred thousand people there. So we didn't know that many. Yeah. So did you have any motivations or inspirations growing up? Someone that you looked up to or something that you looked up to? Yeah. Um, I definitely wanted to be a doctor. Um, we had, uh, it was called mercy ships, um, that, that came by and, um, They had this mission where they just um, basically took the ship to wherever there was a natural disaster. Uh, So whether it was a flood or there was an outbreak of malaria or, um, you know, people just needed help. And it was basically a free hospital uh, that just floats all over the world and helps people. And so I thought that was the neatest thing ever. And so I wanted uh, to do that. I've never heard of that because I was when you were explaining, I'm like thinking Red Cross kind of style, but it's something different, especially with those kind of states on the coastline where maybe it's easier for a boat to get to them, but not fast enough for a car or a vehicle to get to there. Yeah. So just think of it as basically it's a floating hospital um, that goes wherever it's needed. Yeah. Off off the coast of somewhere. Was that always the mission as you got older was to get into the medical field, become the doctor, be a part of that kind of program? It was. Um, and then I failed. <laughs> oh, yes. So, uh, no, actually, it's OK, because I ended up uh, figuring out where I where I needed to go. Um, so I started out as a, a pre-med major and um, I ended up uh, tearing my ACL right in the middle of um the semester. And so I was out for a good half of the semester and, uh, 
rather than dropping on my classes, I still tried to do physical therapy three times a week and rehab and go to school. And, uh, I had organic chemistry that semester and, um, it was not compatible with, (laughs) (laughs) with going to PT that much. So I ended up getting a C in the class and, um, my guidance counselor basically pulled me aside and said, Michelle, it's over. Um, you know, no, you're not going to get into medical school with a C in organic chemistry. And, uh, unfortunately he didn't tell me that I could retake the class. Um, he just (laughs) let it at that. Uh, so I, um, ended up going into psychology of all things. So what was going through your mind mentally when you were getting those grades before you got to your counselor saying that you couldn't be in a medical field with a C, but what were you going through mentally that kind of made it difficult? Or was this maybe a way to find something new that you had a passion for? Yeah, I think it was just, uh, trying to survive, um, that was a significant injury. And, um, unfortunately it happened in the winter, uh, and in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of ice. So, um, navigating, trying to get to class on crutches on ice, um, and not retail tear my ACL. That was kind of like the biggest concern. And I was just basically trying to survive doing the best that I could, uh, didn't really honestly think about the ramifications of the sea, uh, until the guidance counselor kind of was like, yeah, we need to talk. <laughs> You almost needed like one of those snowmobiles just to get around. Right. That would have been awesome. I mean, here in St. Louis, we need, we need one snowmobile one day and then we need our ATVs the next day because you never know what's going to happen weather-wise. But like with school, I've had friends that had crutches and stuff and just getting around, it's mentally hard, but especially on top of schoolwork and physical therapy. Did you feel like you needed a lot more time in the day, even though there wasn't enough more, enough time in the day for you? Um, honestly, no, because by the time I was done with classes, I was so exhausted. I just wanted to go to sleep. Um, so if there would have been extra hours in the day, I probably would have slept them off anyway. Did you ever worry that your focus on education took over maybe your personal life where you weren't able to enjoy what was happening? Obviously not the tearing your ACL, but just enjoy the college experience. I would say I probably did not enjoy college because I was way too worried about the grades. Um, And so I lived at home and studied a whole lot and kind of really missed out on a lot of the college experience until I went into psychology. Um, And then classes were super easy for me. Um, And then I definitely did have, uh, you know, a lot more friends and was out a lot more because I didn't have to study as much. If you redid college to take the time travel back, would you do it differently where you weren't focused on that part, but enjoy it like you did as a psychology major? Or do you feel like everyone says every path leads to where they want to go or every road has its story? And that was the path that you needed to take because it ended up bringing you to where you are today. Yeah, I honestly don't think that I would change it because it, um, I was always very disciplined. Um, and then for, so I was always incredibly hard on myself, probably a lot harder than I needed to be. And, um, I think it took that failure, uh, for me to kind of lighten up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no, I, I wouldn't have done it any differently because I think I needed to learn that lesson. Why do you feel that you were hard on yourself? Was the expectation from maybe your family or friends 
making that big impact on you? Or was that something that was going on through you? Yeah, I think that was my school. Um, I went to a, a private school and, uh, it was expected that you were going to, um, not just go to college, but thrive in college. Um, so, um, I, I think that was instilled in me from a very young age. Yeah, I can agree with that with being at a private school for myself and just trying to they have these expectations and you just it's hard seeing other people struggle and you're like you're trying to help them. But then again, you're paying so much money. It's like you kind of know what you're going to get yourself into when you're going to college and stuff. Yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't meant to be uh, fun in a party, right? It's supposed to to be apprenticeship for your life. (laughs) Are you telling me those TV shows are telling me the wrong thing about college? (laughs) Right. How about that? Surprise. (laughs) What was after you were starting your psychology major? What was that next goal that you were trying to accomplish? Um, Or did you have a new dream job that you were wanting to go for? I basically have always been driven by wanting to help people. And so that was kind of the next best thing that I could see to be able to help somebody in the medical field. Um, and so I, I went into, uh, into that major. And then when I graduated, um, you know, I wanted to help kids. Um, and so I, I took a job as a, um, a counselor at a boot camp for juvenile delinquents. Um, and everybody kind of laughs cause they're like, that should not be your first job out of college. Um, but, uh, it, it was great. It was, um, it was a really good way for me to help a lot of kids who just needed an extra hand. What was the most challenging part of that job? And what was the most rewarding part about that job? I think the most challenging part was the politics. Um, you would think that everybody there would be there for the kids, Um, And that's not necessarily the case. Um, Even through the whole system, I found that it was pretty much all about money Um, and they would just cycle kids through. And um, if they made it, they made it. If they didn't, oh, well. Um, So there was a lot of um, less than ethical things that happened, unfortunately, um, that uh, actually caused me to leave the industry. Um, I think the best thing was... um, you know, having, seeing my kids grow, um, being able to, you know, have them come in and, you know, they would start a fight over somebody moving their milk carton. And, uh, you know, by the end of the time, um, you know, they could, they had learned to control their anger and, um, and, and done really well and be able to function in life. So. You talked about helping people and you said that the politics and the ethics caused you to leave that industry. Do you feel that you were able to accomplish the part of helping people in the short amount of time that you were there? Yes. The kids that I helped, I helped. Um, And it's not numbers. Every single one of those is an individual and a person. And so, um, you know, every one of the kids that I had on my docket, um, I was able to make a difference in their life, hopefully for the best. What was next for you after leaving that position? Yeah, I went back to school and I got my MBA. Um, And so when I did that, um, I kind of got away from the medical industry altogether uh, in industry. And I um, decided that I, you know, kind of wanted to go into teaching and training. Um, And so I actually got my um, MBA in entrepreneurship and in finance. 
Did you have, when you were growing up, did you have any motivations in entrepreneur or was this like the first time you were actually being exposed to entrepreneurship? Yeah, this was the first time. So while I was uh, putting myself through my MBA, I was working as a retail manager at Lens Crafters. And um, one of the guys that came in who I was helping get glasses told me about a book called uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And um, I had never heard of this. Uh, We didn't, you know, have budgets too much in our family growing up or anything like that. Um, and, uh, I just became absolutely obsessed with it. It was, um, just amazing. So I, I started with rich dad, poor dad, and then I read the four hour work week shortly after that by Timothy Ferris. Um, and, uh, <laughs> that's all she wrote per se. Is there anything in those books that kind of stick to your mind today that you always pick out anytime that you look at something? Yeah. I mean, they've taught me to see the world in systems. Um, and so it makes me definitely value, um, an hour of my time and what am I doing with it? Um, and also to remember that money is just a tool. That's really at the end of the day, all it is. Um, and how we use that tool, um, really changes our life, um, and a whole lot of other people's lives. Can you explain that for people that are listening, how money kind of takes over people's lives? And that's the main focus of their career path instead of doing something that they like in a way. Because you talked about how you were in a field where it's more about the passion of what you're doing instead of how much you're making in that case. Yeah. And I think that's the key. So many people want to have a certain number in a bank account. Um, and that's, what's going to make them feel safe or something like that. But, um, at the end of the day, um, you know, I was always taught that if you close your hand, um, you, uh, you can't ever receive anything, but if Mm -hmm. you open your hand, um, not only are you able to give, but you're also able to receive and money works the exact same way. Um, when we hold on to it very tightly and we have to reach that number in the bank account, um, you know, it, it ends up becoming uh, a very stressful um, taskmaster versus a tool that we use for good. And so um, if we're able to repivot the way that we think about money, where it's just something that we use to accomplish things for good for others, then um, that makes all the difference in the world. And the amazing thing is, I find that the more I give, um, the more I make, and it's crazy how that works, but the more that I give away, I almost instantly make it back and then some, so it's pretty cool. You talked about budget being a huge thing with your family. Do you kind of keep that same mentality today and how a budget shouldn't have to take away from the things that you like to do? No, absolutely not. I am completely on the other side. (laughs) Uh, So I would say that I am team Dave Ramsey um, because uh, once I had a budget and I was able to stick to that budget and eliminate my debt, there was so much freedom in not having debt um, that now, you know, it's before, you know, I could have, you know, taken my family out and not been able to pay $300 for dinner. And now that's not a big deal at all. Um, And it's because I have set my budget and I live below my means as opposed to just do whatever I want. So 
Um, for me, a budget isn't a constraint that keeps me from doing things. Um, it's actually freedom to be able to do whatever I want as long as I'm below that threshold. I kind of like how you said that because I think the struggle for me when I was coming out of college was like, oh, I got all this debt. What am I going to do? I can't spend all this money. I got to be able to pay these loans. But I think it's more about kind of like you said, the more you like give, the more that you'll receive in a way. And the harder I've been working, the more that I've been able to do fun. And I kind of reward myself in a way with the financials that I am living. And I kind of see the difference between my friends and I, it's like completely night and day. And I think, like you said, it's just, it's a sense of freedom in a way. And I think that's what a lot of kids coming out of college need to focus on is you don't want to start coming out of college struggling and being stressed to the max because it's just going to continue and long, the long way. And it's just not fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely had to learn that the hard way. Um, when I got out of college, uh, it did not take me long to rack up $35,000 in credit card debt. I had no idea what compounding interest was. And I thought <laughs> as long as I made my $20 minimum payment, that it was going to go away in six months. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what they need to teach us in college. Not all right? this other stuff that we didn't need to know. <laughs> <laughs> so what was next for you as we're continuing down your rise to the challenge? Yeah, so um, I became a project controls engineer for a um, very large construction company, and I did that for several years, and then um, I ended up having a stroke. And so when I had uh, a stroke at work, um, it erased my ability to do math. And when you are managing millions of dollars, uh, it's not good when you can't make change for 20. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, so I, I was no longer able to do that job. Um, and it took about, uh, four years to rehab and get better. Um, and, uh, through that rehab, I had to actually learn how to outsource a good part of my life. Um, I no longer remember to, um, do simple things that we take for granted. I don't, I don't remember to brush my teeth or take my medicine or turn the stove off when I turn it on or, turn the, uh, you don't leave the keys in the door, um, kind of a thing. And so I've had to set up systems inside of my house that, um, basically remind me of everything that I have to do. So I've outsourced those tasks to a machine, if you will. Um, and so I decided, you know, Hey, if we can do that with everyday tasks, why can't we do it with business tasks? And, uh, and so a couple of friends, um, got together and, um, we started testing it and it worked uh, very, very well. And uh, a few years later, awesome outsourcing was born. And so now we have a virtual assistant agency. Did you have any signs before the stroke that could lead up to when it actually happened? Or was it something that it came out of nowhere and it was not expected? Yeah, um, it was totally unexpected. I had what we didn't realize was um, I have a hereditary blood disorder called homozygous factor five, um, which about 2% of the entire world's population has lucky me. Um, and so basically that means that I have blood clots running around in my body at all times. And one shook loose and went up into my brainstem that day. And, uh, when it did that, it cut off oxygen. Um, the guess is three to five minutes. We don't know exactly how long and enough to do some brain damage. Um, and, uh, luckily not kill me. And, um, 
that was when I had lost my vision and, and that was when that happened, but nope, there were no warning signs. During the recovery stage, did you ever think that it may have not go to where you are today, where you're able to kind of do the task that you were doing before the stroke? Or did you have the mindset that we're going to get this to be better and be able to do the, these tasks? I would love to tell you that it was all sunshine and roses. Um, <laughs> it definitely was not. Um, yeah. In fact, probably eight months after I had the stroke, um, I was literally, um, decided I didn't want to live anymore and I was going to, um, just end it all. And, um, literally as I was probably 10 minutes from where I was going to, uh, take care of the issue, um, my, uh, doctor called and, um, she's like, Hey, I just want to check in. Life's been kind of rough for you. Uh, and I just started laughing at her. Um, and, uh, so we, I promised her, I, I had a great deal of respect for her. And so I promised her that I uh, wouldn't do anything to harm myself that day. And it, I would give her two weeks. Um, and uh, over that two weeks, um, ironically, she didn't hospitalize me. Um, she was very awesome about it. I went into the office and, and she's like, you know, Michelle, anybody who went through what you went through would not want to live anymore. Um, but we can make this better. And I found that very hard to believe because I was in a lot of pain and I really just wanted to get away from the pain. I was tired of being in pain. Um, but, uh, we did get me into physical therapy and I'd love to tell you that, that, that made it made all the difference in the world. And it didn't, um, I got there and, uh, I was stubborn as all could be for about six months. Um, you know, it was just, woe is me. Um, I can't believe I've been dealt this hand in my life. I'm 36 years old and I can't even talk or walk what's going on with me. Um, and, uh, it took about six months and then my physical therapist finally had it. Uh, and one day, uh, we had a come to Jesus meeting (laughs) and, uh, she's like, you know what, Michelle, she's like, you can keep coming here and you can be grumpy and you can, you know, do whatever you want. Um, or you can actually try and I can help you. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you know, she's like, you have no idea how lucky you are. I said, did you just really tell me I'm lucky? Like, come on now. Oh man. And, uh, she's like, yeah, you're really lucky. She's like, do you realize that if you would have been born 50 years ago, none of the technology would be around to help you. And if you will let me, I can teach you how to have a relatively normal life, but you've got to stop wallowing. And you've got to actually try and pick yourself up. And then, and only then will you start to get better. And, uh, so I basically told her where to go that day (laughs) 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 and and went home and thought about it. Um, and then, uh, three days later I went back and I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. I owe you an apology. Let's work on this. And we did. And, um, it took about a year of super, super hard work. Um, and, uh, putting systems in place and, and learning how to, um, not do things for myself and be okay with the fact that I can't do things on my own and allowing other people to help me and allowing systems to help me. Um, and, uh, that was when it all really changed was, uh, was when she basically yelled at me. (laughs) Do you think the physical therapist if she understood what you were going through, maybe she would kind of have a little bit of sympathy or 
did she did that strategy of really telling you and kind of being on top of you and saying those things helped you get that mindset so you would come in the next day or three days later and have a different mindset to get yourself on track? You know, I'm not a bit mad that she did that. Um, that was exactly what I needed to hear. She did exactly what she should have done. Um, in fact, it probably would have been irresponsible for her to let me keep wallowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm incredibly grateful that she did that because sometimes when you're so stuck down in the weeds, you can't see any light. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so, you know, in that she was basically going to bat for me, you know, she's like, I'm not going to let you be like this. You know, I care about you too much. And if she didn't care, she would have never said anything. So, um, I think that was absolutely appropriate for her to do. And it was the best thing that she ever could have done for me. It's interesting to hear that there's those two people that have, they kind of caught you at the right moment and said certain words and it was able to change the track to where you are today and how if one of those pieces didn't happen it probably would have been a completely different outcome to where you are today absolutely yep would you say that patience was a hard thing for you because you went through the one physical therapy with the acl And that's a long process from what I've heard. And then this process, as it took a few years for you to kind of get to the baby steps. And now when you're looking at tasks and with your company, with those individuals that you're working with, do you kind of give them that same message on it's going to take time to kind of get used to it and get yourself to be able to accommodate those changes? Yeah. Um, So I read a book called Atomic Habits. And, um, I think one of the things, probably the most important point that he had had in that book for me, um, was that if you can just get 1% better every day, that 1% will pay an amazing amount of dividends. And so that's what I challenged my team. If, if you guys can just get 1% better than you were yesterday, we're going to be an amazing company. And, uh, and it, it's it's a manageable task, right? Um, just 1%. I just have to make a little tweak to get a little bit better. And if I can just get a little bit better every day, I look back and six months from now, I've accomplished crazy things that I never thought I would have done because I allowed myself to take baby steps. What's been the most challenging as an entrepreneur business owner in your journey so far? Um, me personally, the fact that I'm only able to work two hours at a time, um, because of the brain damage, um, I can, I can work for about two hours and then I have to sleep for about an hour and a half and then I can work for another two hours and then I have to sleep for an hour and a half and then that's it. I'm done. (laughs) So I only really get to work about four hours a day. Um, sometimes five, if it's a good day. Um, and, and that's challenging. That's frustrating, but it's probably a blessing in disguise because I can't do a lot of the things myself. And so I, I have to rely on my team, um, and have them do it. Um, other things is probably you want to grow faster than you are, but you're glad that you don't because, you know, every time you level up something breaks and then you got to fix it and you level up again and something breaks and then you gotta, you know, and so, um, 
you know, a lot of times, you know, people think it's, you know, they say it's the hockey stick, right? Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then straight up. Yep. Um, and that's, that's not quite true. Um, you know, because it's, it's still, uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, five steps back, <laughs> two steps forward. Um, and so, you know, you have to have some resilience if you're, if you're, you know, every time you take two or three steps backwards, you know, if that's going to kill you, um, this is not the career for you. <laughs> Has your team been very supportive with the personal challenges and the systems that you have for yourself where you like you talked about, you have to work, you only can work two hours, have to, to take a break for an hour. And they just been very supportive and keeps you going and wanting to do the best that you can do. Yeah. My team is amazing. And I think part of that is because, um, I've given them permission to just be normal with me. Um, so many times, um, people around me would be like walking on eggshells, right. Cause I'd be like slurring my speech and they're like, oh my gosh, do we say something? And I'll just make a joke about it. I'm like, oh, well, going to be one of those days, you know? Um, it, and so because it's not an issue for me, it's not an issue for them. Uh, and I've given them permission to just be chill about it. And so I think that's made all the difference in the world. Looking back at your journey, what has been the biggest thing you've learned about yourself? That I'll never give up no matter what. I like that phrase. I think a lot of people need that never give up because we can all overcome anything, no matter what the situation is, but it shows how much passion we have to reach that end goal and continue on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I've always been a fighter. Um, and, uh, you know, that's never going to change. It just takes me a lot longer to get where I'm, where I'm going, which is okay. Cause I still get where I'm going. During this time with the pandemic, has your business seen a growth with people looking for new ways to run their business or utilize certain software products and things like that? Oh my goodness. We've exploded. Um, yeah, we've grown probably 4,000% since COVID. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, and it's just because so many people were, especially brick and mortar, um, you know, were kind of scared to, to have somebody virtual. And then the whole world went virtual and all of a sudden it was okay. Mm -hmm. And so now everybody started to lean in and go, oh, hey, wait a minute. You know, somebody's at home working. How do we track them? You know, how do we make sure that they're productive? How do we build a relationship with them when they're home and we never see them? There's no more water cooler talk. Um, and, uh, and so that has actually given me quite the opportunity to be able to teach a whole lot of people. And because of that, we've gotten a ton of clients. Wow. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. The kind of the exploding of some industries and how people are like, hiring more for to make up for being having all those clients and it just shows that kind of like what you said you're a fighter and this new norm is taking over and you're going to be there to increase business no matter what's going to happen yeah covid um has been directly responsible for at least 20 job creations since uh in our in our company alone it's uh it's been awesome so what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish personally and professionally? 
you know, personally, I'd love to get to the point where I'm only working two hours a day <laughs> instead of four and we're getting close. Um, I have a personal goal, um, where I'm actually going to step away from the business for six weeks and, um, not touch anything, but, um, but actually invoicing. Um, and so from Thanksgiving till about the second week of January, I'm just not going to work and we're going to see what breaks and then we're going to fix it. Um, and so for, for me personally, um, you know, I want to be able to, um, donate a little bit more of my time to, to teaching other people. Um, I also, you know, want to go have fun and do some traveling, uh, on the business side. Um, you know, I think if I can continue to build the systems, the sky is the limit. We've got a really good infrastructure and we're set up to scale now. So, um, it, uh, the once what was impossible is now very, very attainable. <laughs> During those six weeks, is there going to be any temptation to kind of be like, check an email or check to see how your team's doing? Or is there going to be like, are you going to have a system where you're not even going to even touch anything? Of course. Yeah. I'm going to have horrible temptation. And so I'm actually, I told my um, personal assistant that I'm going to lock myself out of my email so that I can't get to it. So I'm literally setting up systems so that I cannot get into anything. So we're going to change all the passwords so I can't get to it. Um, and, uh, and so if there's an emergency, um, then obviously she can get a hold of me on like Facebook messenger or I don't know, whatever, WhatsApp. Um, but yeah, no, we're, <laughs> I know myself way too well. I'll, I'll try to stick my hands in the pot. Um, and so, yes, I have to set up systems, uh, not, not for them. They don't need me. It's, um, I, I just like to hop in and, um, my, my team runs very, very well, completely on their own. And they're able to, you know, make decisions on their own and the company continues to grow. So they, they don't need me. I just, uh, I just like to hop in. (laughs) (laughs) I could totally, if I tried doing that for six weeks, I know things are going to go crazy. I'm going to get my email, have like a hundred emails and be like, this was a bad idea to even try doing that. Well, that's the goal, right? Is, um, you know, if we're, if, if you're truly going to get a business to the point where you can remove yourself entirely, you have to step away long enough that stuff can break. Yeah. And, and then, okay, great. This is what broke. This is what we fix, you know, and it's not, uh, uh, oh crap, that was a failure. It's, oh great. Okay. Awesome. Here's an opportunity to fix that. So failure is nothing more than feedback. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? I think the biggest thing that I learned is to give yourself permission to not be perfect. Uh, so many times we're so hard on ourselves, and it has to be this way because somebody's going to look at us and realize that you know, um, I don't know, the graphic is like three degrees off center or something weird. Right. Um, and, uh, and we get so stuck in that cause we're so afraid that, you know, people are gonna, I don't know, look at us like we don't know what we're talking about. Right. And that's our biggest fear. Um, and if you will just relax and give yourself permission to not be perfect, to allow yourself to fail and then fix it, mm-hmm. um, you will, go way farther than you ever, ever would if everything had to be exactly perfect. So, um, 
I, I like to call it uh, perfectly failing, right? Because we go out and we fail and then we fix it and then we fail again and then we fix it. And then, Hey, guess what? Now it runs great. It's almost, it's basically like growth and experience. You kind of have to make those errors in a way that helps you grow as an individual so that you can become a little bit better. And cause you know that you're going to be able to learn from these mistakes. Cause we know there's no perfect person out there, even though people say they are, but no one's perfect. And we all have to learn from these opportunities and experiences. Yeah. And the, and the cool part is I, I just finished another book called, um, essentialism. And it's basically, how do we do the minimum amount to get the the best product? And one of the things that he talks about in there is to fail quickly and cheaply. And, um, <laughs> and there's a funny story around this. So, um, when they first started with airplanes, they, they wanted an airplane to go across the Atlantic. And so this guy offered like, a hundred thousand dollar reward, which at that time was like an insane amount of money to the first person who could build a plane that, that could do that. And they would all meet at this one designated area. And the plane had to do like this figure eights, figure eights around these poles. And so all these huge companies would build these prototypes that were like expensive and perfect. And, and, um, they all failed. And so what happened was a guy who literally had nothing, he, um, he's like, I have to make this work, but we don't have any money. Like he literally was out there with like a broom and duct tape and I'll be darned if he didn't win the challenge, because what would happen is the, the company that had the, the companies that had the perfect model, they would only get in maybe 12 flights a year because they'd crash the plane and take them a month to fix it. And then they'd have to then they'd go crash it again. He would do like 12 flights in a day. And so he would fly it, it'd crash. He'd duct tape it back together and they'd try again. And then he'd make little tiny tweaks. And what happened was he failed for nine months and then he won. And it was because he failed quickly and fastly. He got all that data back so much faster than everybody else. It just shows these small companies don't can't sometimes don't win everything or the big companies don't win everything. Yeah. They're just, uh, sometimes you just don't have to overcomplicate it. That's so true. Well, Michelle, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thanks, Alec. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the full length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.